1: Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop
2: is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 77 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I shared a delightful conversation with Dr. Natalie Van Dusen, a professor of Scandinavian Studies at the University of Alberta. Her research interests include Old Norse-Icelandic paleography and philology, manuscript culture, hagiography and religious literature, and women's and gender studies. Her most recent research has examined early modern poetry on famous and infamous women from the Bible, history, saga literature, as well as saints and their function. She teaches a variety of courses on Nordic history, literature, and culture from the Middle Ages to the present. In this episode, we discussed how to be a philologist and navigate runes in Old Norse studies, whether female warriors like Lagertha from Vikings could have existed, and we got a crash course on Norse mythology from the Valkyries and Freya. To Freya's cats, and the giants. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Thanks so much for joining me today. I know it's been a bit of a uh, a hectic summer, I think, so I want to just kind of like jump right in and ask what I hope will be a Nice, easy question to sort of get into it, which is what age or when do you remember getting into the study of ancient history? And did you start with an interest in like Scandinavian studies, Viking stuff, or did it start with something else?
1: My interest in, I think, more is like you know, pre modern medieval ancient studies, I think. I think it's probably when I was maybe like 15 or so. And a few years before that, um, I had read a book called Number of the Stars by Lois Lowry, and I became sort of obsessed with, um, with Denmark and decided that I wanted to learn to speak Danish. And I lived in Minnesota and we had these um, Concordia language villages and they had a Danish camp. And so my parents were like, okay, great. We'll send you to this language camp. And so, I sort of started with an interest in Scandinavia generally, and in that area, and in the language. Um, but we did, you know, a number of, you know, activities, and I had, um, I ended up going to three years of what was essentially like a full year of high school language credit. Smashed into one month and we covered some of sort of the medieval period and mythology and i became really fascinated by that and just decided that i'd keep going with it when when i eventually went to grads or undergraduate and then beyond that grad school
2: that's so cool um you've sparked a lot of memories because i did one of the concordia language villages in hindsight i kind of wish i'd i'd taken a a risk and done a a different foreign language i grew up speaking french so it was more just to brush up it's it's really cool to learn that they have a danish one i mean a little sidetrack do you know do they do other scandinavian languages do they have like a swedish one they have Swedish and Norwegian. And when I was an undergraduate, I worked at the Norwegian
1: one because my undergraduate didn't have Danish and Norwegian's pretty closely related. So I was studying that and I went to work at the Norwegian one for one year. So, oh,
2: that's so cool. Oh, I guess I got into it too late to go and do a, a cool language that I, yeah, hadn't just like no clue about. But yeah, no, mine was all sadly too conventional. But anyway, okay. So 15, nice like what is that's midway through no sophomore year of like high school something like that since you were kind of getting into it already by this point um, you know was it was it easy to pick up and and keep going with and and find wide availability for the languages and the other stuff that would help you as you were going on in your academic path Um, because I think a lot of classics majors find that since there aren't a lot of programs in Latin and Greek is not really easy and since you don't really speak latin or ancient greek it's it's real hard and you got to have someone who knows what's going on yeah i mean my interest like at first was you know i became interested in you know the
1: medieval period in scandinavia and um but you know i didn't not so much that i was like i'm gonna study this at the undergraduate level my idea was like Going into undergraduate, um, I sort of sought out school I went to, which was Concordia College, that the language villages are associated with because of the availability of languages. And I thought I'm going to, you know, pair kind of language study with something like practical, like accounting or something. And that lasted like a semester before I bailed on that. And I ended up taking a course in religious studies because of the mandatory at these, these liberal arts schools that are associated with you know, a religious have, have this a religious affiliation, and I was sort of like, ah, I don't really want to take this. This is I'm not really looking forward to this. You know, everybody has to, and I kind of thought it's gonna just want to get this out of the way. But it ended up being like nothing like what I expected, and it ended up being my favorite class. And in that class, and um, we I was introduced to, um a lot of like writings from, um, you know, medieval Christianity and medieval women specifically, like mystics and visionaries. And so I started to sort of put the two interests together, like gender and women in medieval Scandinavia, especially in that period of transition um, from pre-Christianity to Christianity. So it kind of, yeah, it sort of evolved from this interest in the geographical region to um. All of a sudden I'm introduced to this new way of sort of looking at religious studies as, you know, the study of like humans and what they believe, and um, as opposed to what I thought it was, which was something, you know, very different, um, my perception of it. And yeah, I was so fascinated by this period in history. Um, and then I, but I wasn't able to study Old Norse and Latin until I went to graduate school. It wasn't until then that I really sort of dove in. Um, I was reading everything in translation.
2: Sadly, yeah, it's it's still a big problem. I was having a great conversation the other day with somebody just about how accessibility is really hard. Normally, I mean, most of my friends happen to be either Egyptologists or obviously other classicists, but... Um, I do like to dig into some of the other ancient fields. Cause I feel like sometimes we don't talk about it enough. I mean, just from a casual, like outsider observation, if I talk to someone now who's like, Oh yeah, I really like the Vikings and I want to study them in undergrad. It doesn't seem like there's like a lot of places where you can just go do that. I mean, no one has like an old Norse department. It, I feel like, isn't it kind of squeezed into just Scandinavian studies sort of umbrella. And then you have to like, piecemeal your way to study what you want um you know I'm sure you know it's different now than even you know five ten years ago but like is this a problem that is gonna get can it get worse actually because it's pretty bad right now but like you know well I mean yeah
1: it's absolutely and I think like it's it's definitely like a, a problem in within the North American context. I think like in Scandinavia, they don't have any problem teaching about this because it's, you know, it's their their country's histories and there's a lot of support for teaching on these periods. But you're absolutely right. And um, that was the problem that I encountered in my undergraduate is. I was interested in this area. I took a course on Norse mythology in the Viking Age but that's sort of where that's as deep as you could go and it was sort of within a general Scandinavian studies program and um, it was very much sort of a survey course and um, you know there wasn't capacity to go um, to go any you know to go in any more depth and that's I think generally with the exception of a few universities that have graduate programs in um, Scandinavian studies. So UW Madison, where I went, um, Berkeley and Washington, University of Washington. Um, and I think Harvard also has like a Germanic program. Those are a few exceptions where you can delve in more specifically into so like Old Norse language, manuscript studies, um, you know, special special topics in Old Norse literature and the Viking Age. Um, but otherwise, like it is generally like you know, it generally comes from within a Scandinavian studies program, which are pretty few and far between in North America and are as many humanities fields are, you know, constantly under threat and having to justify our existence. Yeah. So that's, it certainly is an issue. And, you know, sometimes it, I think the Viking Age can be taught as part of like history, you know, history within um, the British Isles and Old English as well. But I think oftentimes, even when people talk about Northern Europe, it doesn't even mean Scandinavia. So it's sort of, it's really peripheral too. Um, you know, to the most kind of conventional, you know, surveys of history. So, um, yeah, that's a long answer, but it, yeah, I think it absolutely is an issue that, um, and it's one that, like, even though I'm a specialist in Old Norse literature, um, I still, you know, can't go too far beyond the general survey course because there just isn't time. And there's, you know, I'm the only full professor in Scandinavian. And so I have to teach other classes as well. So yeah, there's, there's these a, a myriad of issues that make it difficult. And so it's often students sending them on to further study, you know, in Scandinavia and Iceland or Norway. Denmark or Sweden.
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously the troubles don't really and there there's so many other ones at least in our system. So I'm I'm curious then so since you're going through this as well when there's not uh, you know a lot of options either when you make the decision and get to that grad level because you didn't have a ton of exposure beyond like a, a basic intro course, you know, how did you go about figuring out exactly what to specialize in. Cause I feel like once you get to the place where there's more of like a, a bigger buffet, let's say, I feel like you could get really easily overwhelmed with, Oh, but they have this now and this and this and this, and I want to do it all. So how did
1: you do that? Absolutely. And so like the nice thing about my grad program is like everybody had to take courses like and everybody had to take Old Norse. Everybody had to take, you know, this, you know, these certain classes that were regardless of what you were going to specialize in, whether it was going to be, um, you know, Scandinavian linguistics or, you know, philology or, you know, looking at modern Norwegian literature, everybody had to take Old Norse. And so that was a nice way of sort of t- testing the waters and figuring out, like, I think I want to do this, but do I really have the chops for it? Because, you know, it's Old Norse language and it's it's not easy. <laughs> and. Um, You know, or, you know, and I mean, it's a little bit like when I took that religion class that I I had no idea would, you know, kind of open up this whole um, whole, basically what has become my career in terms of what I study. And so it does give you the chance to, you know, sort of get, get a broad overview because the reality for people in graduate school for Scandinavian studies is you'll likely be the only person teaching in your area at in the department that you're in. And so you'll have to teach pretty much everything. So you do have to get sort of exposure to everything from, you know, Viking age to crime fiction. Um so that is a nice way of of uh of figuring out what it is that you want to do. Um but
2: you have sort of have to be, yeah um able to do it all. Yeah, it sounds pretty hard. Now, I am curious as a philologist. I'm coming from studying Greece and Rome where we have a ton of texts and other m- written materials. My perception from outside the field for Old Norse studies is that it was these cultures were mainly like a they 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 revolved on oral tradition, right? So is it quite hard to be a philologist if you do Old Norse studies, because there, we don't have just the, the sheer volume that you would find in classics. Yeah, in some ways it is. I mean, the situation in
1: Scandinavia was that it was, and, you know, the areas where most of the literature was written down, which was predominantly Iceland, was that these texts, these you know, it's, we usually talk about the sagas, but also poetry, they were transmitted orally, they were you know, developed orally, and then transmitted orally for Um, sometimes two to three hundred years and then they were written down once Christianity came and introduced the Latin alphabet. Um, The runic alphabet was available before but was not used for any sort of long narratives. Um, And so you have this you know issue of you know texts that are being written down after this long period of oral transmission, but there is quite a large volume of texts in um, that are um, you know that are preserved in in Iceland. Um, so Iceland has a very rich manuscript tradition. They have. That most of the works about kind of the Viking Age, Norse mythology um, and stories that were told about the original settlers of Iceland and um, important people who lived during um, the Viking and Middle Ages in Scandinavia were produced in Iceland and were kept though so despite it going through you know really kind of very difficult times in terms of volcanic eruptions and famines. Um, they were a highly literate um, nation and so there were farmers, and you know kind of everyday people who were copying these texts even in the middle ages um, and, um, and beyond and, and keeping them as sort of these treasured objects. So it's very different I think from working with texts in like Latin and Greek and we deal a lot more with um, yes, a lot of variation in um, orthography, I think, a lot more so than you would see. We rely a lot on orthographic evidence to sort of data text because there's, you can see the development of language happening as well. But yeah, there is there is quite a lot, um, especially in Iceland, and there was a continuation of uh, what I find fascinating is that people kept copying things well after the Well after the the printing press was established, people were still copying things by hand. And so you have this continuity of of copying down saga literature and medieval texts well into sometimes like, you know, the 19th century.
2: That's so cool. And you mentioned runes. And so something that I obviously, I always wanted clarification on. So when talking to like a friends of mine, I would talk sort of about, oh, it's so cool. You know, cuneiform. And I didn't, I realized I didn't like know what it was until they sat me down and they were like, it's a writing system. It's like alphabetic, but, but you know, it's not just like you sit down and you read a French newspaper. They're like, no, it doesn't work that way. And so I think, a lot of people don't also understand how runes work. Cause if I were to sit down, I'd be like, Oh yeah. Runes. I guess it's like any other ancient foreign language you just read. So can you tell us, is it, more of just it's it is a writing system that you you is that you have to sort of navigate and put together because you know one rune might be a sound not an actual word because i think the last uh, you know time i talked to somebody about it they said oh yes they showed me a rune and the, they were like this is the word for and i was like but is it but is it in terms of like each rune has like a name and so um
1: like you like it's like a letter form but it's equivalent to a name and that's something kind of. Like that, like thorn or something like that. Um, but I mean, it's an alphabet. It just was, but it was a system of writing. And as far as we know, it was used for commemorative purposes, like usually, like a, this. You know, this stone was erected in honor of so and so who died in this battle here, or this stone was erected in honor of, you know, my this this woman named so, you know, uh, um, this woman who is, you know, the handiest maiden in this area of Norway, or something like that. Um, there's also some th- things that have survived on like on wood, but yeah, so each rune does have a name um, as it's referred to, but it's not as though it's like a cryptic sort of thing, as, as far as it was used in the middle ages. It sort of becomes like, it gets picked up a little bit later on in Iceland, as sort of like this encoded language, you know, this these different cryptic alphabets, and they sort of adapt the runes in that way, but that's much later. And certainly they don't have this mystical or like function that you see, like as they've been sort of picked up in new Age circles, I often get, you know, emails from people that want to get tattoos or something and say like, I've heard that this rune symbolizes this or this or this. And usually I'll, I'll kind of just say that, you know, that's not historically what runes were or what they represented. Um, There's some, you know, evidence of magical functions, but it was an alphabet. Like that's predominantly what it was.
2: Yeah. I, I, it only occurred to me to ask, it just goes to the heart of, you know, if you're studying old Norse studies, I've always wondered like, yeah, do you have to spend time actually reading things with runes or is it more of like you, because there's more like medieval Iceland, like could you get away with reading more like, old icelandic texts yeah
1: i I think absolutely that like i don't deal much with runes at all because they sort of are their own they're within their own category and um if i dealt more in my own research with the mythology um then i think runes might be a bigger part of what i do because there are some um, picture stones with themes from mythology and some sort of legendary and mythological things on on runestone that I think it really is dependent on what it is that you do. And if people are interested in, like some people that do kind of more like hardcore, like historical linguistics, um, do deal more with that to track sort of the evolution of the language, because the runes do represent an earlier period in the language than do the manuscripts, which are reflective of, you know, the 12th, 13th, centuries when they, when these texts are written down. Yeah,
2: it's really helpful to be able to have a solid clarification and explanation because I think it's all too easy to just assume, you know, if I hear somebody studies Old old Norse anything, I think there's just a tendency to assume, oh, this must mean that they all deal with runes, not just the specialists, and that this must be the thing that they all read. And so it's very helpful to have someone be like, no, 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 no. it is actually its own thing. All of us, we don't just do this. So no, it's super, super helpful. Um, but yeah, going a, a, a little more into some of your research Areas. Um, I think I read somewhere that you you've done some work on like women and gender studies, and so I'm going to ask maybe a stupid question, but again, not in the field, so it's fine. And I don't know if any of my audience knows any of this anyway. But I think in especially the last couple of years, you know, there's a increased fascination with exactly some of the roles that women were able to do during let's just be nice and say anywhere between the 9th and 11th 12th centuries. Let's go with that. Um I think especially after the Assassin's Creed Valhalla game came out because you had a you could play as a female protagonist. Now, I know there's not like a ton of evidence. There's nothing that we're going to find that's just going to be like yes, and women were this and they did that. But I wanted to ask you just since you do research on this subject Is it possible, like, women warriors, how likely is it that we had them and could have done what we see, like, in this video game?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's something that's definitely, like, come into, like, the um, sort of popular, you know, discourse because of, you know, I mean... Everything from Marvel to to gaming, um, and also like some of the popularity of certain um, archaeological finds. There was the Birka find, which um was a burial of a woman who, um, whose DNA was, um, you know, it was identified as she was identified as being a uh, female, and she was buried with weapons. And so this like kind of got everybody really excited, um, and um, so that you know this is really confirmation that women did participate in warfare, but that that came under quite a lot of criticism, um, especially by a scholar named Judith Jesch, who has written some of the best stuff out there on women in the Viking Age, from like the historical standpoint um, about sort of how we need to sort of be cautious about these types of examples and take them in conjunction and kind of the importance of interdisciplinarity when looking at these things. So, sure, we have this find of a woman buried with a sword and, you know, armor, but there could be many reasons for this. And this should be taken in conjunction with other evidence, like the literary evidence, which makes it pretty clear that women were not supposed to um, wield weapons. And, you know, according to law, they were prohibited from doing so. Um, There are counts of battles where, you know, women and children are get going into shelter, any Kind of accounts in the saga literature where women do, like kind of the more historical saga literature where they do try to wield weapons. They usually botch the job. They don't do it very well. So it's sort of thought that, you know, perhaps that would be amazing if that were the case, but probably the exception, not the rule. And there's some, ish- you know, there's some Johanna Katrin Friedrichsdottir has written a book called Valkyrie, which is really good and is um, geared towards more popular audiences. She's also written a book, um, a more scholarly book book on um, women and gender in the Viking, in, the, in medieval um, Scandinavia. But she talks about gender performativity and um, as, as um, something to consider as well. There's one body of literature that people often point to and I think where these ideas of women warriors come from, exactly. so they're the legendary sagas as well as the mythological literature, which is kind of, and this is what Johanna has talked about in her book, it's sort of the um, Medieval equivalent or their equivalent of like fantasy literature. So it's the space where they had Valkyries and they had maiden kings, women who you know um, ruled as men and you know took on almost a male name and fought in wars and but always temporarily. They were eventually you know after they'd kind of gotten out of the systems, they always had to get married. But that's a whole other thing. It's sort of like this that it's allowed to happen where there's also dragons and other really fantastical things going on that it's clearly sort of this imaginative space. It's something that is certainly possible, but I think the general consensus right now is that that would have been like generally like an exception um, for women to to fight um, alongside men. And, you know, according to the law, it was only freeborn men who could wield own and wield weapons. Sad sadly, I always I hate bursting people's bubbles about that because I think there's this sort of fantasy about the Viking Age and about, you know, women um in it. And I think in some ways, you know, compared to um elsewhere in Europe, like women did have, you know, not, not by modern standards, they didn't have it good by any means, but they did have the right to like divorce, for example. They could divorce with just cause and they had to provide consent to marriage and they had complete sort of control over the domestic sphere. So there are some things that um it's not nearly as exciting as like a woman being on the battlefield, I think. But
2: so basically, no Lord of the Rings style shield maiden Awenesque esque thing. Exactly. I mean, like Awen, it would have been like the
1: exception. It would have been somebody who, like, you know, she. You know what I mean? Because she was like, she wasn't doing it like with anybody knowing she was doing it. It would have probably probably been some something like that. Um, You know, there's, there's ideas about like this woman who was buried with her weapons. It could have been her husband's weapons. It could have been like a mark of, you know, honor, prestige, or status, or something to have been buried with these grave goods. But yeah, so I mean, this, again, it would have been, in some ways, I mean, Eowyn is maybe a, a good example of like, if this did happen, it would have probably been a little bit like, like that, you know, very much the exception.
2: Because I was about to ask is I want to know out of two things, which one would be more likely to hew closer to history, which would have been Eowyn, who, yes, like we saw in kind of the lead up to the third Lord of the Rings, that like, yeah, she had tendencies. She was kind of headstrong. She wanted to fight. She didn't really do much until she hid herself and then fought. You know, take someone like Lagertha, right, from the Vikings show. There's no none of this, I'm going to hide and no one's going to see me as I'm fighting. She's all like, pow, pow, pow. Hi, I'm a badass shield maiden. I'm just going to go kill people. Yeah, I mean, I think, that, I think that the Lagertha-like
1: character is much more unlikely to have been um you know something that occurred in reality um just based based on what the other sources tell us and kind of i mean there's a literary and historical sources the written sources that very much indicate that this is you know this was kind of the the realm of men um was was warfare and i mean even the word viking Viking is a is a male Noun, like with the R at the end. It's um, you know, it was a male profession.
2: At least it's fun to to see and fantasize our Lagartas. Although I heard she was based on what people think might have been either one or two different women is do you know anything about that the the woman she's supposed to be based on yeah i think she was supposed to be based on a woman who was
1: in um a danish history by saxo grammaticus she was recorded in in that text that's sort of where that came from i don't know as much about that text specifically so it's one of these like you know she's based on a figure from history but you know very much fiction um in terms of the details of her life. Um, so it's from Saxo Grammaticus's, um, which is from the 12th century. He mentioned it's Ragnar and Lagertha. So it's kind of taken from that, you know, so it's based on, it's based on some history, but, um, and some, some literature and she's described, you know, sort of being like an Amazon in
2: that text. Interesting. Oh, you know, so, okay. That, that, uh, the immediate comparison my brain is going to then is so, so she must be like the, old Norse equivalent to Penthesilea, right? From Greek mythology cuz our Amazons are you know, they're they're not the norm either because women warriors in ancient Greece not really uh uh uh, but y- you have Penthesilea. Yeah, and what's interesting
1: like with a lot of these And it's like Johanna, Katrin who I mentioned before, she talked about this type of woman that's like called a Maiden King. It's sort of, this is a character type and they're they're women who like, they fight and they, they act as men, but, um, they have a, within their story, they're never allowed to stay in that state permanently. They always have to, um, they have to get married and a lot of the stories about them are them trying to resist marriage and, you know, often being subjected to a lot of horrible things in the process and they always eventually succumb. And it's sort of like a, you know, you can occupy this space um, temporarily and that's fine, but this cannot be a permanent occupation. And I had a student who actually did a presentation on AON as sort of modeled on that that story that story type because she also she eventually gets reoccupies her position as you know a royal a royal daughter and you know she has her dress on at the end again and everything like that. And she's not fighting anymore and she's you know she's coupled up with somebody and it's 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 a fantasy and it's something that you could think about, but you know it's never never a full time permanent occupation for women, um, even within the fantasy realm.
2: So since women didn't really, I mean, with the obvious sort of maybe exception around, I we hear a lot, and especially thanks to the the uh, Thor Marvel movies, I guess. Um, you know, I think. a Greater amount of people, right, are sort of discovering, and they love the character King Valkyrie, which I find hilarious that her name is King Valkyrie, even though she's a woman. And I was like, this is my brain hurts. But okay, so for all of us who we think we sort of know what or who a Valkyrie is, can you tell us what? who, what are they supposed to actually represent? Because if women aren't supposed to be in this realm, you know, we we might sit here and think, well, it's kind of weird then that you would have these women like take up a a very important part and be mentioned a lot. Right,
1: no, exactly. So Valkyrie literally means chooser of the slain. So, um, and they were this host of of female, of of women um, who were um, kind of, written about, um, in, in a way that sort of has. It has it so that they're riding over the battlefields usually, and they're choosing the slain who are going to go to Valhalla, the Einherjar, which means the chosen slain. Um, They choose, and they're gonna, you know, they kind of ride over the battlefield, they choose these chosen slain, and um, these warriors who are selected to become um, Einherjar um, are brought to Valhalla, where they prepare for Ragnarok, or the end of the world. So they kind of feast on never ending need and, um, and, and meet and they fight all day and then regenerate and do it all again the next day. So they kind of are depicted as yeah these riding above the battlefield and choosing the, the warriors who, who die in battle and are going to go to Odin's Hall, Valhalla, which is Hall of the Slain, and fight in preparation for Ragnarok. And in the more legendary literature, they're often, uh, the heroic literature, um, they're often like lovers of certain heroes um, and they kind of have, they're oftentimes Again, like stories um, that are like the po- like kind of related to mythology, sort of the heroic literature. They're, they're women, oftentimes, who were princesses and sort of chose the Valkyrie life, but again, sort of always temporarily, and um, they end up you know, having to go back to, you know, getting married or something like that. So, like, the Sigurd the Slayer, I think, is maybe, like, sort of the, one of the best examples of that, with Brünnhilde. There's the German equivalent with the Nibelungen lead. Um, she's Brünnhilde, Brünnhilde. Like, in her story, they're associated with Odin. In her, in her story, she had upset Odin by taking the wrong side in a matter, and he put her in this, like, sleep spell. But, um, so she's an example of sort of one of these like royal women who chose the Valkyrie lifestyle for a little while, but eventually she, you know, she gets married like they all do, like the Maiden Kings. So
2: they have this interesting pride of place, but also it's interesting to learn they they're temporary then. Um, Cause I think the impression we get right is that they stay around for the, like, like, I don't know. I feel like you always have them, but I guess I didn't realize it wasn't like the same lady. It really depends on the text. So within the mythology,
1: there is an, the sense that
2: these are like princesses who like
1: act as Valkyries. Um, So like the Poetic Edda, for example, it's one of our main sources for um, Norse mythology, early 13th century manuscript, and like the first part is strictly mythological texts, and the second is like heroic poetry, and and it has to do with like Sigurd the Dragon Slayer and the gods sort of play roles in these. So in the more strictly mythological literature, you get the sense that they're more like deities who, you know, ride above the battlefield and they're, um, and, and they have this this role and you don't have that sense of, you know, temporality in, in you know, they have to reintegrate into a, a social order of some kind. But once you get into the more human world, we're entering the royal courts and um, human issues, as opposed to being strictly within the mythological realm with the gods and Asgard and, and the Valkyries take on a, you know, a slightly different form.
2: I'm curious, is there any, like, greater, bigger significance that I may be missing that, those who are the ones who will, like, select the the slain to go to Valhalla are women? Like, is there is there something I'm missing? Or is it, like, I don't know. It, it, it's, yeah, always been, like, oh, why is it the women who pick? Yeah, I, I don't know, exactly. I mean, like, they also,
1: like, they have a, once, I should say that once they bring them to Valhalla, they're also in charge of serving them, like, serving them need at Valhalla. So they're not, like, just, like, purely this, you know, sort of, like, really cool, you know, riding chariots over the battlefield type of function. They have to perform what is very much a stereotypically female role in old Norse society, which is, even the goddesses do in Norse mythology they have to serve um you know hospitality being this really important um important virtue um as far as we can tell from the literature um in viking age and medieval scandinavia so like you have even the valkyries like doing that <laughs> so reflecting reflective of like these cultural values of um you know, the importance of hosting and um, domestic work, even though they have this like really, you know, badass warfare persona, they still have to serve the meat.
2: (laughs) Oh, man, that's like, it's like you get the best job in the world. And then they're like, oh, but there's a caveat, you're also doing this. So it's kind of like a bait and switch. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, there's, there's still some kind of a, you can still tell that there's gender
1: hierarchy based on that. It's not like, you know, that's, it's, it's very clear that there's a, a specific place for women, even if they're, even if they're goddesses, even if they're kind of almost deity-like um, figures, sort of pseudo-deities like Valkyries are.
2: I didn't plan to go down such a rabbit hole for the mythology, but you know what? I'm enjoying it so much that I was like, I'm going to just keep this train going because it's always sparking so many great questions. So the, so, the, so the next one I will pose is, so because there seems to be such a, a set place for women and their roles and it's very you know hierarchical it's i've always wondered okay uh until like two three years ago i didn't even know that freya the god freya had her own like afterlife field and and she takes half of the, the the dead in battle right so i'm like what so why does she get her own then even like if she's a woman and Do the Valkyries also get to pick who goes to Folkvanger or not really? Is that just a Valhalla thing? So she's supposed to receive half the slain and Freya has
1: kind of a connection to the Valkyries and she is not really, she's not a Valkyrie herself, but she's, she's Valkyrie like, and I don't know. I mean, there like she herself rides a chariot that's drawn by cats she's sort of the goddess that's associated with warfare i mean freya like there's a lot of interesting things about freya are you know not totally i think agreed upon like there's you know is are freya freya and frigg who is odin's wife the same person but she does have this valkyrie like function herself and yeah her hall is folkvanger and she does take half of the chosen slain it's unclear exactly why um but she it's like oh she reflects odin in a lot of ways it's like odin is a god of war he's a god of but he- He's also the god of wisdom and the god of poetry um and the god of death. And um so he Freya similarly, she's the goddess of of love and uh fertility, but also she has this battle function in her in terms of her relationship too. So she almost is sort of yeah, she mirrors Odin in a lot of ways. What you know, there's always the idea that Freya and Freya are the same person, therefore Freya is female equivalent to Odin as like a spouse potentially, but again, there's no like real consensus, the sources don't necessarily agree. And tell the same story on this at all. There's no sort of one canonical source. There's a lot of different sources that sometimes say different things. And that's a tricky bit about Norse mythology, um, because of the oral tradition, like almost certainly, you know, it's sort of developed in all these different ways. And, you know, one text will tell us one thing about a figure who was there, and another one, you know, will have somebody else entirely and different, slightly different accounts of the same stories. So we have all these variants um on not just the mythology, but um other texts as well. So a lot of versions of the same stories.
2: I'm curious is, I mean, maybe it could just come down honestly to hierarchy and because it was a man's world, that's just the way it was. But I feel like when I read stuff or hear stuff, y- you, I really don't hear anything about talking about the privilege of ending up in Folkvanger. It's not like a bad place, right? Isn't it supposed to still be like a kind of like nice place so like why don't they talk about that more like I know okay fine everyone was like Odin Valhalla but I'm like if is kind of like sort of samesies why do they not be like it's okay I could go there too yeah I don't know I mean it's it's
1: uh, it's it's mentioned in so few sources like I think it's like in only like maybe like a couple of the sources that we have there's like I think one poem that mentions it and then Snorri starts listening and his prose edit mentions it very briefly saying that that's Freya's Hall there just isn't much information about it. And, um, and there's, I mean, the most likely situation is that like anything we, we might've known about it is like lost to us forever as are so many other sources. Because I always talk to my students about how what we have about mythology, it's like, You have a puzzle, right? Like, but you only have like one sixth or one seventh of the pieces, right? Like, you don't, and then you're trying to piece together what the whole picture looked like, but you don't have all the pieces. And that's very much the situation with Norse mythology. So much, it's very clear that there were more more poems and more sources that are like Snorri Sturluson refers to things like a poem called Heimdall's Chant, which Nobody has, it's not, it doesn't exist anywhere, you know, so it either went up in flames at, you know, the big fire in Copenhagen, um, or it's at the bottom of the ocean somewhere because the manuscripts were taken from Iceland back to mainland Scandinavia, or it just was lost entirely. It's hard to say whether there's any, like, whether you can ascribe any meaning to people talking more about Valhalla than full or, um, just because of you know, the issue of sources.
2: Uh, Like the like most things in, in ancient history. You want an answer? Well, we don't have it. So guess. Yeah. I mean, it's depressing to me as somebody who works, I mean, I work predominantly with the you know, manuscripts that
1: like, it's depressing to think about when I start to think too much about how much is lost. I mean, it's amazing the amount that has survived. And I mean, Iceland, especially, had sort of an unparalleled vernacular literary culture in the Middle Ages um, that was super productive. And we do have a lot, but there was so much more at one point, the, you know, the, the different uh Charters and things that tell us about, you know, this monastery, that lists its kind of itemizes what it had and its ownership, and it'll talk about all the books, and it makes it very clear that, you know, there was so much more. But I also think that that kind of like it makes Norse mythology and some of these other things like a really interesting space to imagine what might have been, and I think that maybe is one of the reasons that medieval and you know ancient worlds are of such interest in sort of popular culture is because you can imagine more, um, I think there is more more space to imagine what might have been, you know, we because do, we don't have everything. So you can kind of, I think, like think that you know this is a possibility. So That's one idea, because I mean, I'm always thinking about why we're so fascinated by the by this period and why, you know, pop culture continually turns to it. Um, I think that might be one of the reasons there's just more space.
2: I I would agree. I mean, it's it's quite interesting because when you almost sort of do a comparison, right, for what we turn to or what we like to look at, I feel like, you know, there is this intense fascination with Norse mythology because to the casual eye, right, it's bonkers. I mean, you know, like goddesses in a chariot pulled by cats and then you're like, little tiny cats that are like six or seven ounces and then you're like no 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 no, no." like they're massive giants and you're like what yeah the casual eye north mythology is bonkers and because of the lack of text you can go anywhere with it but also you do have tons of stuff well not tons but like stuff preserved from ancient egypt where their mythology is also bonkers i mean like greco-roman mythology is the only one that kind of sort of seems a bit i guess like Closer to us. Um, but the, there's just more there. But yeah, I, it's it's interesting. Because when I think of like Egyptian and Norse, I'm like, yeah, those are the two that are strange. And, and I think there's there's more room for us to interpret and kind of figure out what we want to do. This is going to be a very me-centric question. I love cats more than anything. So, so Freya's chariot drawn by cats. I'm just very curious as a cat person. Did the like vikings like cats did they see the utility of them like the egyptians and they were just very popular because i'm like why cats this is awesome but why cats i agree i also
1: like i'm a big I, i have a cat and um i love cats so um i i mean there was there's you know it it was known that like Viking raids or expeditions, especially sort of the larger um, larger ships would have cats on them. Like there was a utility of cats because they would take care of the rats and the mice and the vermin and everything like that in the ships. And so, I mean, it's known that like, you know, they had cats on the ships with them. So they absolutely had a function. I don't think they were held in the same like. Reverence as maybe like some other mythologies as being, but you know, they were absolutely saw utility in them. And I think it's interesting that, like, if you've ever seen a Norwegian forest cat before, yeah, I mean, like, they're thought to be like Maine coons or thought to be potentially related to them. I mean, who knows? I have no idea. But like, I've heard this theory that because you know, Nor- the Norse came to Newfoundland and that part of the world that potentially that introduced that species and that's what main coons are ultimately descended from. I have no idea whether that's true or not. They are big. Ba- big they're really big cats like so <laughs> i was thinking of as big cats i'm like that's not so uh you know because they're big like they're giant these um our, our cat is he's a. I. I.
2: I think he might be part Maine Coon. he's just
1: a big big orange fluffy boy
2: oh yeah i mean yeah they're they're massive i i didn't know about them until 2015 and then i studied first semester in edinburgh And they have a cat cafe that I would frequent quite often. And they had two, like, enormous Norwegian forage cats. And one was, like, a totally white one. um, And he had beautiful eyes. And I loved him. And he would come and snuggle on my lap. Okay, obviously, I have, like, 10,000 million questions. So I'm going to try to to limit myself and and keep it to, to one more good one. I am curious about giants, right? Giants in Norse mythology and because it's so different from everything else because when they describe like the gods, I feel like some of the sources ascribe this, this deity like thing as, as like, they're actually magical beings. And some, they, they seem almost more humans who just live a long time. Um, And then because it's so segmented into like the sort of deities, whatever X text would describe to them, and then giants um but also it's weird because like the giants are often only women so i'm like what what is this about why is it the giants are like the women so giants first is like it's often
1: it's what the name um so it's singular yet and plural yotnar. it's what it's translated to but it kind of gives a false perception of what they likely were they they seem to be just another category, like another clan or sort of like a race, a mythological race, I think is what kind of um, the general consensus is now. And um, they are associated with um, some prophecy and and death um, and infertility as well. So like they don't seem to have um, a good time, like or, or an easy time procreating amongst themselves. But they are kind of just this sort of enemy mythological clan, the Aesir and the Vanir, which are a uh, kind of two you know categories that merged in a way, right? Like they kind of have an interrelationship with the gods or with the with the gods. There's a clear hierarchy that you sort of have the the Isir and the Vanir on top, and the Yhnad are, you know, are very much, you know, seen as as below them. The women the reason you hear about women so much is because um their intermarriage can happen, um, but only one way, and that it reflects the hierarchy. So um gods take women giants as concubines, or if they are sort of the lesser category of gods, the Vanir, they, they marry them. So like Freyr and his dad Mjörð, um, Mjörður, um, they both marry um, giantesses. But like Odin, and uh, Odin procreates with, uh, you know, a, a giantess for example, um, and that's a fairly common thing. But it never goes the other way around because that would invert the hierarchy. John, there's a scholar named John Lindau who's one of kind of the foremost experts in Norse mythology, he talks about the, it's kind of a it sounds, it sounds bad, but like a one way flow of women, but it is, you know, like historically, like a way that, you know, different groups would show dominance over the other, we can, you know, they, um, they would take, you know, marry women from the, from the group, but if it happened the other way around, that would single in inversion of the hierarchy. Um, so you do hear sometimes about male giants, um, and like Loki is a giant, for example, and you know the the race of giant is patrilineal, so if your father is a giant, then therefore you are. But if your father is a god and your mother's a giant, you're a, a god. They have this like this, this weird. It, it's very much sort of just another category of being, another mythological race, and one that's often um, at odds with the gods. Um, but they also have a, a weird interdependence with them as well. But some of the biggest threats to the gods come when male giants kidnap or come very close to marrying goddesses. So they're always after like Freya, or even some of these you know, the goddesses. And that's some of the biggest threats to the gods, because it would, them succeeding in doing that would threaten their hierarchy or, or their status within the hierarchy. Yeah, so it's not like, they're not like giants in the sense of like being these big trolls, you know, like big friendly giant, you know, that land of world doll or something like that. But they're really just another category of, you know, kind of a lesser, aspect of looking at kind of race um generally race studies within um the medieval medieval scandinavian world um is sort of like a mythological model for for that so i have a grad student who's working on um mixed race identities in um, old Norse sources and you know the mythological literature gives a really interesting sort of like guide for how how that's how it might work, and how it should, and how it shouldn't work. So, yeah,
2: I mean, it sounds really cool the way you're describing it, but really, really uh, not super cool. Either. So I, I'm, I am very familiar. I know there is that one myth of uh, Thor killing three. Giantesses, I think, because you have a myth like that, and and because most of mythology talks about yeah, it's it's very one way. And the the last one I'll limit myself to though is what about the rare powerful one where it seems like she's not going to just roll over and and kind of be the god's plaything? Like, isn't there? Um, oh, what's her name? Oh God, uh, I'm so bad with Norse mythology. Um, Angerboda, right? Isn't she supposed to be kind of like the rare, different one who just isn't a doormat? Yeah, but she's also bad
1: because <laughs> her name literally means sorrow bringer. So she's the one that she has with Loki, like the three monstrous children: the Midgard serpent, Hell, and Fenrir the wolf. She's certainly not portrayed in a positive light. I think one of the giantesses that is, you know, sometimes they're they're you know like the the wife of Njordur, whose name's Um She's kind of almost like a Valkyrie like figure. She dons her her father gets killed um by the gods because of something that Loki set into motion. And you know, she dons armor and comes and demands um retribution for him. And that's how she ends up being married to a god. There's another giantess named Gebur who marries Freyr, who is, you know, portrayed not super negatively, but you know, they're not portrayed as but de- usually, typically, they're not portrayed in a very positive light. They're not portrayed as being particularly, I mean, sometimes they're like prophetic, but in other times they're easily tricked. It's not always very consistent. Like the one you're talking about with Thor, he, he kills them. I mean, that's Thor's job is to is to protect humans and gods from from the giants. Yeah, I think uh, there's a myth, too, where he, they one of the giants uh, wants to marry, um, name's, yeah, the giant's name is and he wants to marry Freya Loki agrees to it. Um, without consulting Freya? And she says, absolutely not. And so they have Thor dress up as a bride and Loki as his bridesmaid. And then they go and have like a wedding feast and then they kill all the giants or Thor does at least. It, it's comedic. He's very obviously Thor in, you know, he's, it, it's Thor in, um, dressed up in a wedding gown and not at all looking like Freya, but Um, So it's, again, not consistent.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So it seems like, uh, well, you might get some respect if you're an evil, powerful giantess, which. Yeah, exactly. And
1: she uh, she's she's destined to bring like the children. Yeah, yeah, her name means sorrow, sorrow bringer. Like, so it does not bode well for her. Like (laughs) what? So
2: bring bring like ragnarok armageddon whatever to to the gods and 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 yeah we'll speak of you powerful good well the 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 last one you were talking about i think they 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 had a version of that myth in assassin's creed valhalla one of the dlcs that had to do with with I think, I think you were. It was the one where you played in Asgard. Because there's one arc where you went and played in Asgard, and there's one where you go to Jotunheim. But I think it was the Asgard one. I think they did a, a riff on that, but instead of Thor, it was like they had Loki turn into Freya. So the only thing you could tell was different was like the voice. But again, animation—you can do whatever you want in a video game. Um, but I, I enjoyed how they bring brought that, I guess. And as someone who studies you know old Norse, and and clearly has a vast knowledge of the mythology do you like to watch media and and like do stuff in your free time or do you like to try to delineate work life from like other interests
1: so i would say probably the latter like i enjoy popular culture and i and i have i really enjoy a lot of the portrayals of you know, the Viking age and Norse mythology in popular culture. But I think I've come to the conclusion that it's difficult for me to separate than work because um, it's somehow like, even though I'm enjoying it, it has me sort of in the realm of the things that I do when I'm thinking and, and working. So it's not, as the, that's not the escape that I need because I, I also want to know, like, this is the introductions that a lot of my students have had to Norse mythology. So I wanna kind of know about that. And I do find it really fun. My, you know, chosen, you know, like media for escape is it's not the, you know, medieval North if they're in the viking age it's it's something
2: else nice. yeah i don't know i just i've noticed a trend that like a lot of people who study the ancient world they get asked a lot like oh so do all, you know i got asked the other day oh so i bet you just want to watch all of the things based on ancient greece and rome and i'm like well i enjoy them a lot and i've had to let go of any type of accuracy really to enjoy it but um yeah i was like no my my whole life is not just you know i don't show up in a toga Everywhere I go, I don't have a statuette of Athena on my desk or my bedside table, but it's weird how many people assume, like, if you study this, then you should be it, right? I often
1: get, like, oh, you must watch Vikings. You must, you know, certainly you've watched Vikings, right? And it's, like, actually, I really haven't. And I've tried, and it's, like, I have no problem with, you know, like, taking liberties with the material. It's nothing about, like, being a snob about historical accuracy. It's just that I don't find that I can, like, get the escape that I need.
2: So, okay, to end the sort of interview portion of the podcast, I have a couple last questions. The first is, when you were a student, either undergrad or grad level, did you attend your professor's office hours? And this could be the informal type of office hours as well. Absolutely. I, I I loved going to chat with my professors, both in undergraduate and graduate
1: school. And I would attend during office hours, but I would always seek them out, you know, in other,
2: you know, outside of office hours as well. And yeah, that was definitely something I did. <laughs> nice. And do you have a favorite memory of, you know, a cool conversation or experience something that happened to you during one of these conversations? Yeah,
1: I mean, I have a lot of really, like, I have, you know, depends. I mean, one of the kind of, I think, formative ones, the early ones was with a professor. The professor I took that religious studies course with that kind of got me interested in the medieval world. And I had signed up for the class late, like toward the very end of the ad drop period. Um, And because I had originally taken accounting and decided that no, I hate this. And um, I'm going to fulfill this requirement instead. And a friend of mine who lived in the same floor happened to be taking this class. And I met with her in office hours. You know, it was like, okay, it's going to be a lot of work to catch up on and all of these things. And that's fine. And she's okay, just so you know, and then, A few weeks, you know, like uh, further into the semester, I visited her and she encouraged me to continue to pursue this field of study because she was, um, you know, she thought that I was sort of really meant for, for studying it really. Um, And I think that was a really, important moment for me being having that recognition from a professor that says, like, I can see that you, this sparked something in you and that, um, you know, you have this interest. So you might consider taking, you know, this class on mystics and visionaries in the middle ages or further studying, you know, this class within the field. So, and then of course in graduate school, you know, my, my PhD advisor is somebody that's still my, my, my friend and mentor. Um, but I had so many amazing conversations with her that were, you know, really important. Um, including the one where I almost quit grad school. I I saw the uncertainty of the academic future and I almost quit kind of, I guess, maybe strange, but both really formative in their own ways. You know, I think that they really shaped (laughs) what ended up happening, my life trajectory, um, in really important ways. And I'm glad she did that she talked me down from that academia is rough. And, um, I know a lot of people I was in grad school with who are brilliant and wonderful and deserving and you know there just aren't enough jobs but I don't think I ever would have regretted getting the PhD. Well, that's
2: good to know and I do love hearing about, you know, just like the different impacts that amazing mentors and professors have had. I mean, yeah, one of my favorites is not even academic. Like, yeah, my professor, my favorite professor helped me in a lot of ways and advised me how to go through and get through undergrad. But... Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, that's why I love being a professor
1: too because it's, you know, you get to fulfill a kind of like a a broader role in like a student's life you know um and i appreciate having that opportunity yeah
2: no i mean and so i will say you know this is a show called ancient office hours and so if you had to give students like a 30 second to a minute pitch on why they should attend office hours what would you say i just think it gives students a more
1: of a connection to um not only the class but you know the instructor and it helps to personalize the experience in a way like some of these classes you know you're in a classroom of a, you're one of 100 students and um it can oftentimes the professors really want to get to know students but it's like impossible in a class of that size and um I think it helps to really make the most out of the experience in a class, to attend office hours, to, um, and not just for reasons of getting clarification on readings, but of just kind of talking more generally about, you know, using that resource for advising. And I've had so many students who, you know, were, you know, among like the hundred students in their class and came to office hours and didn't necessarily specialize in my area but took my classes like as options and you know developed relationships with them and I write them letters of recommendation and it sort of has this you know and it generally helps you I think be motivated to do well in the class to develop that personal relationship and it's there for you too I think like it's there for students and we you know otherwise we just sit there and we hope somebody comes in so we want you to visit us during our office hours
2: yeah i couldn't agree more cuz i definitely lived in my two favorite professors office hours i think i just bounced from one to the other when one had to teach so i thought the same way of thinking about myself i'm like um oh, i'm always the first one there <laughs> first one there longest one there last to leave uh yeah no it was a fantastic experience but anyway okay at the end of each podcast, I ask if each guest would read Shelley's Ozymandias poem. And then once you've done so, um, I would love to know your, you know, opinion on this poem has been cited as something quite influential and people seem to think it quite beautiful. And for me, it was life changing. But I'd be curious to see if you agree and generally what you
0: think about it. i Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes.
1: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. At a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck boundless and bare the lone and level sands stretch far away it makes me think about generally legacies of, of figures and words yeah look upon my works and despair <laughs> nothing beside remains round the decay i mean it, i'm thinking about our conversation as well about the lost words, the lost manuscripts as well. And that sort of recalls that to me, um, you know, of what remains of, of something that, you know, was once much more complete, um, and well, and much better understood. Um, but I have to think about it, I think, a lot more <laughs> I have to reflect on this a lot more. But um, yeah, I think it's it's really beautiful. Yeah,
2: I think, you know, this is a poem that I read, I believe, in high school, maybe earlier, but I really can't remember, but definitely high school. And from the first time I read it, it became my favorite poem of all time, which I know is ballsy because we have so much great poetry but it's a beautifully crafted sonnet. I mean, you he crammed so much into 14 lines and it's beautiful. It's like a memento mori kind of, um, and the, the power of monumentality and, and definitely the ephemeral nature of power, but also political power because it was Ramesses the Great. Uh, you know, this guy thought he was going to be king for, well, ever, um, or at least that his civilization would be around for eternity. Thinking about the poem in that context The last question I ask every guest, if you stop and think for a moment about our contemporary society right now, do we have like a modern equivalent of an Ozymandias? Like something that we think is so great, but like realistically humans in like 500 years, are they going to agree with us? Are they going to think these people were crazy? So something that we think is more significant than will be viewed as such in the future and probably
1: something relating to the internet and the things that opinion pieces or something like that you know people i think what they have to say in some you know in in these debates you know, maybe carry a lot more weight than than they do. Um, it could be something like that. You think about um, you know these influential Twitter threads and things like that. I, I wonder how how some of those are going to be be viewed. Um, you know, a thousand years longer than that. Um, I have to hope, as somebody that produces scholarship, that it's going to, you know, be seen as somewhat useful still, if not like necessarily like an incredibly, not not necessarily like a super influential thing, but it's something of some importance, but well, not trivial at least. <laughs> so potentially you know, something related to online um, existence. and um, Yeah,
2: that's a great answer. I've definitely gotten a few people say the internet because I'm like, it's true though, because I mean, you know, people say all the time, oh, well, you don't want to get caught saying this because then if it's on the internet, it'll be there forever. And I'm like, okay, but the internet is like a few massive servers somewhere in like Silicon Valley. And if someone were to pour water on it or short circuit it, then we lose the internet forever. So kind of scary to think about, but okay. So I kind of lied. There is one, there is one more question I'm going to ask you, but it's a really easy one. Where can people find you if they would like to see your work or get in touch with you about trying to study old Norse or anything of the like? Yeah, if you
1: go to um, ualberta.ca and just search my name, Natalie Van Dusen, um, under the search function, it should bring you to my faculty page. And that is probably like the best, most up-to-date place where I keep you know, my publications and things. Um I did a TikTok page for a little while um when I and I still update it sometimes. Um and my handle is the low key professor and I did that while I was teaching mostly remotely and I was doing summaries of my lectures, three minute summaries. So I have some stuff
2: on there too if you want to, you know, see short lessons on a variety of topics. Great. Well we'll make sure to link all of those, any of those uh, in the show notes so people can do so and, and we'll put your uh, your faculty page in there just so people can can go see what you're working on. Um, this has been super fun. I definitely did not mean to do such a deep dive into the mythology, but I got so excited that I couldn't stop. So I'm sure there's there's like 10,000 more things we didn't get to, but I'm, oh, I, I hope we can have you on sometime in the future. I don't know what it would be yet, but please do come back and 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 speak with us. So uh, thank you once again. It was, it's been so fun. You're welcome. Thanks so much for reaching out and for having me on.
1: Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings.